coming to you from the pit in Royal Grande, California. Your hosts, John Hackleman and Dr. James Casper. It's time for Pitmaster and the Doc. Hey guys, Pitmaster here, and I'm here with the Doc. Bang. John, good to see you, as always. We're going to do Pitmaster and the Doc, but we happen to have a special, special guest. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a hint right now. Uh, uh, it's time! Bruce Buffer's here with us. What's up, Bruce? It's Double Fist Bump, boys. I'm here. I'm ready to go, John. Anything you need, Sensei. Let's do it. Okay, let's talk about it. First of all, Bruce Buffer is the best, oh, nice. without, without a doubt, the best sports combat sports announcer ever um but we want to find out when did bruce buffer and how did bruce buffer become bruce buffer because you hear another one out there who's probably the second best out there oh michael God. buffer yeah. he's really good he's really good too <laughs> and i'm not gonna say what he says because the last time i did my lawyer called me I guess I was sued because you're you're not allowed to say, "Let's get ready to run." Uh, fumble. No, no, it's okay, it's fumble. all right. But we I, honestly, John, if your lawyer gave you a call, it's because I'm the sheriff behind the man behind the rumble, and that's I gotta police it. But if I knew it was you, I hope you didn't pay us anything. <laughs> I'm joking. I love Good. that. <laughs> I was thinking. I was, this is what I was thinking. Like, like if the if the guy comes in the climbs through the ropes. And he like trips on the ropes, and your brother goes, "Let's get ready to stumble." We've had we've had so many paraphrasing of that phrase. We've actually had, "Let's get ready to fumble." We did a whole campaign Football. for craft, yeah, craft that we did that on Saturday. He did that on Saturday Night Live. Uh, then we had a big commercial campaign for craft cheese. It was, "Let's get ready to crumble." So. In the marketing aspects of the rumble, which honestly is the most famous phrase, trademark phrase spoken in sports and entertainment, I believe, ever and still is, although I, I know my time is carrying legs and, and moving strong. But I've been marketing and branding that phrase now with Michael as his manager and partner for some 28 years. I'm very proud of all that we've accomplished. I personally consider Michael the most legendary, greatest announcer of all time because Quite frankly, and you remember back, John, because you've been, you know, you fought as a pro and you were around way before the UFC, putting your blood, sweat, and tears on the ring floor. Um, nobody really paid attention to the ring announcer before Michael Buffer came along, you know, and then he did everything with his James Bond flair and created a pace that allowed people like me to grab it and create my own thing. And I never wanted to be Frank Sinatra Jr. I told myself if I didn't have my own style developed within two to three years, that I was going to stop it. Because I never wanted to be that guy, you know. So it all worked out. So say, <laughs> but it did, and and so um, it did. What if it didn't? What, what would you be doing right now? Would you still be just managing him, and just what? Well, you know, I started my first company when I was nineteen. If you look in the dictionary and you look up the name entrepreneur, the word entrepreneur is probably going to say I.E. Bruce Buffer. I've I've been 
I, I've had numerous companies I've owned and developed um, in various areas of life, from telemarketing to security uh, to nutritional to management to import export, all this kind of stuff. I will always be able to make money. I'll always find something to work. The question is, will it be something I'm passionate about, which is what I'm all about, which is passion, following my passion. So, yes, I would still be managing Michael because we have a variety of business ventures that that has branched out into, um, and I'd still be very happy. But uh, I'm extremely happy and extremely passionate about my role that I kiss the ground every time, every day I wake up, humbly speaking, and thankfully that I'm the voice of the octagon. No, you're you are the voice of the octagon, all right. Now, one thing I'm noticing because I call you to yourself and to everyone else, you're like James Bond. <laughs> and I see a Doctor No poster behind you. Oh my oh, yeah. god! Yep. Do you I, love you know James what? Bond because you're just like him? I well, thank you. I appreciate. It. I travel the world. I put a tuxedo in a bag. I don't have to kill anybody. I find a casino. Maybe if I'm lucky, I'll kiss a pretty girl, unless I'm in a really solid relationship, of course. But if that's about as close to James Bond as I get, then fine, I'll take it. I always wanted to be James Bond as a kid. I'm sure you did too, John. What what young man didn't when Bond was happening? He's the coolest of the cool. So I, I would be more like I would be more like I was more like the ruffian guy. I, I never thought of myself like James Bond. But anybody <laughs> that sees you, especially. At one of the UFCs or that around that time, you surrounding yourself with like these exotic, gorgeous women. Usually have like a really nice suit, even a tuxedo at times. So you are like the James Bond. You know, you said it, Sensei. I'll take it with a big smile on my face. I love it. I'll, I I can't even argue that kind of comparison. I'm honored. Thank you. Appreciate it. Are you as much of a a this isn't in a derogatory way, guys, so sorry for all the femin feminists out there. Are you as much of a woman's man as you appear to be? Um, you know, perception is reality. It's all in the eyes of the beholder. The best way that I can answer that question is I did go into that in my book, It's Time, which Random House published my biography about seven years ago. And I do have a chapter in there to all the women I've loved before. And I talk about my rules of dating. I talk about all that kind of stuff. You know, John, I we touched on this at lunch with Heather. And the thing is, is that I've never been married, but I've almost been divorced twice. Okay. So that means the two women I thought about getting married to, I look back. Honestly, I don't think it would have worked out. I'm very happy to have a clean slate for whenever that does happen, that I do choose to walk down the aisle of love forever. But being a man at 61 years old and, and never been married, I have dated many wonderful women. And I love women. I, they're just, I, they're my passion. I think they're the stronger sex. I'll be honest with you. I think mentally women are stronger than men in many ways. I'm, you know, obviously physically, we can argue that point all day long. Um, I have tremendous respect for women. I love the company of women and I treat them as total equals. And if that answers your question in a roundabout way, I guess it's the best way. So I haven't married for, for the 40 years that I've been dating or the 45 years I've been dating. So I guess I've gone out on a few dates, John. How's that? I'm trying to, in my mind, picture a number, and I just... <laughs> Don't go there, John. <laughs> that will get me in trouble. <laughs> I, would guarantee, I would guarantee you, I will guarantee anything, it's at least five digits. But anyway, okay, let's talk about something else. So, not the mark of a man, not the mark of a man, John. No, it's With not. I'm just saying. I mean... I got you. I got you. I'm just saying. It's just, you're a guy he like knows. you. This guy knows. He knows everything. <laughs> Oh my mini B, mini B, mini B. 
So, uh, so you, you're doing something. I don't know what you're going to tell us in a sec. And then all of a sudden you had a, a yearning to do something and then you saw somebody doing it and he had your last name. Is that kind of the roundabout? Well, actually, uh, in the long story cut short, uh, Michael and I did not meet until I was basically about 29 years old. And he was and around that's your 43. Brother, your half-brother, right? My half-brother. Right. Michael and my, my father, Joe Buffer, who passed away, God bless his soul, uh, in 2008, um, was a man that was like a combination of Errol Flynn, Steve McQueen, and John Wayne all rolled up into one. Very handsome man. He walked in a room, and guys either wanted to get to know him or they wanted to fight him. Women either wanted to get to know him or get to know him. I mean, he had amazing charisma. He was married to my beautiful mother, who is I'm having dinner with in an hour, which I'm very looking forward to, uh, for 57 years before he passed. But he was a real role model for me. And then what happened is, is that in boxing back then, when I own telemarketing companies, before the internet, I looked in every phone book, as a lot of people do, to see if my last name was anywhere, if I had somebody in that state or city. And I saw every phone book in the United States that never saw my last name buffer, right? So now when Mike Tyson was getting popular back in the late 80s and all the great boxers, I mean, let's face it, we were watching great boxing every week. Yeah. Out comes this debonair, very handsome man with the James Bond style about him, too. And it said on the camera on the screen, Michael Buffer. And I'm like, wait a minute. Well, who is this, this guy? Buffer. I have never seen that name. That's the first so time you saw your brother? That's the first time. Wow. So then I would, I becoming a fan, as a lot of us did, of his announcing. And um, about a year and a half go by, I'm calling up Don King's offices. I'm calling HBO. I'm calling everybody to find out more information. Who is this guy? It turns out he grew up 20 miles away from where I grew up in Philadelphia um, in Abington. And there were just too many similarities coming to focus. So I'm driving with my dad about a year later, and we're on a road trip. And I said, Dad, you know, people are coming up to me, asking me for autographs, asking me if this is my brother. You know, do you know who this guy is? And I got this. I think that's your brother. Right? That's what I got. I got that. If I was driving the car, I would have driven off the road. It's like, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? Well, son, I never told you that I was married briefly during World War II. Uh, I was 20 years old. I went overseas for nine months to do my part. I came back and a son was born. And the last time I saw him was when he was two and a half years old. The mother and I had divorced uh, very quickly. I kept in contact. He was start, He was raised by foster parents. And what turned out, Michael was raised um, up until the age of 20. And when he was there, he was raised by foster parents after his mom had passed away. And he was raised under the name of Huber. So when he went in the in Vietnam War, when he enlisted in the Army... They said, your name is not Michael Buffer. He never was formally adopted. His birth certificate still said Michael Buffer. So they go, you're not Michael Huber. You're Michael Buffer. Had that not happened, John, we may not be having this conversation. And that's that's what happened right there. So then I mentioned to you that there was the Reseda Country Club in the Valley where a lot of great fights took place. You even fought there too, right? Yeah. Okay. So back then the Goosens had fights there. Michael would announce the fights. And... Uh, Michael was announcing the fights and I had dad call there and leave a message and Michael called him back and they met for lunch and lo and behold, it turned out to be his long lost son. So we got together. I'll never forget that first night when he walked in the Italian restaurant we uh, ate at and here he was. Network. It's not us, huh? It might be. 
your network? I don't know. Are you guys there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you cut off. Where did I cut off? You're just talking about going into the Italian restaurant. Oh, yeah. So then in walks this man who is my brother, who I'm a fan of, and I can't begin to explain to you the feeling that overcame me. Long story short, again, we got along very well. Everybody got along great. It was a fantastic dinner, great stories. Um, and then when I was traveling the country building my two businesses, which, which I was very successful at, but I had no passion for it. I was burned out, right? And I'm going to boxing matches, and I'm, I remember I was at the Evander Holyfield Riddick Bowe fight, November 13th, 1992, if I have that date correct, at Thomas and Mack. And it blew me away how everybody reacted to him in this huge event. So I went back to my hotel room, and I, I instead of going playing blackjack or going and partying, you know, and having fun in Vegas, that people like to do, I wrote down three pages of notes of like, trademark this phrase, talking keychains, video games, put them on the court of the NBA, put them on the fields of the NFL, put them in everywhere of sports and entertainment because nobody did what he did. But the important thing was to trademark this phrase because he never made a hat or a t-shirt off it. So I met Michael, basically told him I want to make him richer and more famous than he ever dreamed. To do that, I will sell both my companies. I'll give up the money I'm making, the beach house I'm living in, everything else. I'm willing to roll the dice, right? And I gave him two very successful companies. I sold them. And with the money that I had, it, it gave me the money I needed to build the business with him. And we had our first product, uh, licensed product, published, or rather manufactured within a year. It was a talking keychain and a talking beer cup when you watch football that said, let's get ready to rumble on it. And his voice came out of it. And then I started booking him, and it just got on from there. I, he looked at me, and he said, how are you going to do all this? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to give all this up. You better believe I'm going to figure it out. And I did. We did as partners. Was that the second time, well, the first time you saw him, was that your dad with you guys? Did he come too? No, no. At that point, this was me meeting Michael. I'd meet him in Vegas. I'd go to fights, you know, I'd, all that kind of stuff. So this was me pursuing my own dream. And then I told my dad and I told my mom my decision and I told others. And as much as they loved Michael and everything going on, everybody thought I was crazy because, John, I won't go into figures. I never talk money. I'm not that kind of person. I'm very humble about everything, um, but I was making incredible money, John, back in 1994, 95 when this took place, and I gave it all up to pursue it to hopefully make more. Decision. Sometimes you just got to say, you know what? It's like Tom Cruise said in, in Whiskey Business. Sometimes you got to say what the, you know what, you know, just yeah. go for it, roll the dice, go for it. And obviously, it was a huge success. But besides his success, when did when did that so you keep so you're still his manager, but when did the, the it's UFC. time? When did all that all right, start? Five, five bucks, John, but it's a credit. You know, we'll just buy me lunch next time I see you. It's all good. So, <laughs> so then, uh, oh, you already did. No, that's a credit you already have coming. So anyway, um, I got in the UFC. I when I saw the UFC because I've been a martial arts since I was twelve. I've got three black belts. I kickbox heavily for uh, 10, 11 years. Um, and then I told you I wanted to have my uh, not my first pro fight. I just wanted to have one pro fight. And I was training for the pro fight, and I got concussed the second time pretty badly and met the doctor, and the doctor just gave me the final kibosh. He said, stop, just stop. He goes, are you making money at this? I go, no. I do it because I love it. I like to fight. And he said, stop. You're slurring your words. You're having problems. The problems are going to get worse in 10 years. If you keep this up, stop it. So I followed his advice, and I just kept training. So I never had that pro fight, but 
I've always been involved in fighting. I understand fighting. I fought on the beach, the street, in the ring, everywhere possible. And I'm not trying to sound like a tough guy. A lot of us have just had past experiences in life. I'm just telling you, answering your question. So when the UFC came on the scene in 93, that was my world. I loved that. I loved everything I saw. Granted, it was a spectacle. Um, it was what style is the best style. It was the blood sport. You know, what's your style? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, mine was striking and purely striking. In 1991, John Millius, who designed the Octagon, took me to a dojo in Torrance, asking me to train jiu-jitsu. And I said, John, I've done some jiu-jitsu training. He goes, no, you never trained Gracie jiu-jitsu. So he took me to a Torrance, uh, this Torrance dojo, and out came this young 21, 22-year-old, maybe 175-pound young man. And I'm like, uh, at the time, I'm like 32. And he's like, come with me. My name is Royce. Come with me. So Hoist Gracie, I met him, he took me into one of the dojos, or one of the rooms there, the padded rooms, he closed the door, it was just him and me, right? I understand you like to kickbox, I understand you're heavily into kickboxing, very good, come at me, take my head off, right? So I said, you want me to put on some gloves? He goes, no, come at me, let's do this. So I went out, and he got underneath my punches, and literally, I, I'm going to call it 45, 50 seconds, he's choking me out with a side choke. And he goes, tap, tap. So I tap. And then I never forget this, John. I'm on my back. He gets up. And he straightens out his gi. And he says, see, isn't it nice not to get hit in the face? Right? Now, this was 1991. Then in 1993. And, and then what he did with that, aside from the fact that almost every street brawl I've had has gone to the ground anyway. But I'm a good biter. I'll do whatever it takes to survive. So um, when he came out of 93 with his hands on the back of his family walking out, I looked at my family and friends. We were watching the pay-per-view, and I said, see that guy? He's going to beat every one of these guys. Watch what happens. And lo and behold, we know how history showed it. He did yeah. in one and two. So that's a world I wanted to get into in some way, shape, or form. So I got Michael to announce UFC 6, 7, and Ultimate Ultimate. And the first UFC I attended was UFC 6 in Casper, Wyoming, which is the introduction of Tank Abbott, right? We all saw him on the dais that day before the fight, and we looked at each other, and we said, that guy's going to beat all these guys. You know, He just had that look back then. Um, still does to a degree. But Michael's contract ended at three shows, and I had a big contract for him with WCW Wrestling, which was like one of the biggest things happening at that time. And there's no way he could have continued. So here's what I did. This is called thinking forward. This is called going and asking for the job and getting what you want. I told them, I said, you need – a buffer in the octagon. I've got multiple media contacts I've developed over the years working with Michael. Nobody's, I mean, people are watching you, but nobody wants to put you on TV. They don't want to see you on Jay Leno, whatever the case might be. Let me help you build this sport, build this brand, but to do it, I've got to be the announcer, right? I want to grow as the announcer. And it fell on deaf ears. So now I'm figuring, how can I do it? So do you remember a fighter named Scott the Pitbull Ferrazzo? He fought in the early days had a big battle with Tank Abbott, Verlander, um, on and on and on. And he was just a monster, 320-pound monster with arms going down below his knees. He was out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. So he contacted me, sent me a tape, and I sent the tape to Robert Myers, the owner, acting as his manager. I didn't want to manage fighters, but I did this on purpose. I got him a gig at UFC uh, 8 in uh, Bayamon, Puerto Rico. So now I'm flying down to the UFC with my fighter as his manager. Because they give you the ticket, right? I put a tuxedo in the bag. I called Meyer once ahead of time. I said, I need to talk to you at the affair on Friday night because I want to announce the prelims. 
So at that, at that party that they had the night before, I did my sales pitch and he let me announce the uh, three fights, um, which, you know, were the first three fights, the prelims. And I did that. And then it fell on deaf ears. I thought I did a good job. Uh, the rich man, G man Goins was the announcer and they didn't call me back until about six months later. And I got a call and they invited me to announce all of UFC 10. That was my first full UFC. Then they hired somebody else, right? I would fly to New York. I go to their offices when I had other business. I take them out to, you know, do a drink or whatever, constantly asking for the job. So it didn't happen. And the guy that they hired was kind of shuffling, good voice, but he mispronounced names. It gave me more fodder to call them up and say, hey, guys, come on. I, I need to get back in that octagon. I should be the announcer. Let's do this. False ears. <clears throat> Long story cut short, I'm going to end right now. They uh, made a show on Friends called The Ultimate Champion. And they, Warner Brothers called me. Robert Myers called me. So Warner Brothers is going to call you. They're going to pick up tape and film. They want you to be the announcer who is actually just going to be a voiceover, but they would like you to be in the show, but they want to make sure you're good for the show. So they call me later that day. They can be on the set at 530 in the morning. You rehearse all day. You'll film on Wednesday. I called Robert. I told him that. And I said, Robert, I got to meet you on the set. So at lunch, I met him on the set. I said, Robert, I feel like a girl waiting for a date to the prom. I've been after you for almost two years now for this job. Now I'm co-starring on the biggest comedy on TV as your announcer, as myself, along with John McCarthy and Tank Abbott. Let's make a deal. John, that was the best poker hand I ever played in my life. And then I had, I did every UFC from that point forward until about three, four years ago when they started getting a lot of them. And uh, there's another gentleman that fills in for me and maybe does six or seven shows, whatever. I'll do every show, but if I can't get there, when you're on a plane, they've got to put somebody else in it. That's the story. So from, now, one addition. Go ahead. From which one? So uh, one addition is. Did you start? Say again? So which one did you actually start from then on? I did UFC 13 on. Okay. So, so all the way through. There was one time I did a, a UFC. Lot. It's a lot. 22 years, John. It'll be 23 years next February. Wow. So then. Um, Persistence. It's, yeah, well, that's the key, man. Come on, consistency well, and persistency in life. The key is the motor that you have. I mean, where do you think you got that from your family or from your dad? Or where did you get the motor to just do, just go after what you want? Because a lot of people just don't have that. I got that from my dad and my mom. Uh, they're two of the best role models I ever had. My dad probably got me into more altercations and introduced me to more nice uh, women to possibly go out with than any best friend I had in life. He was quite the character. <laughs> but he was also an entrepreneur himself who even wound up running Fortune 500 companies, vice president of sales. We moved a lot. We moved a number of times from Philadelphia to Texas. So finally at 15, we moved out to Malibu where I've lived you know, since then. Um, and watching him uh, pursuing his businesses, pursuing his passion, which was a writer, he quit the whole business world at one point after we moved out to Malibu with the money he had in the bank, which wasn't much at the time. We were not wealthy. We were middle class. And he wanted to write, and he had his first book published within a year. And then he taught me how to trade collectibles, which is another business he has. So I was out there helping my family, even when we went broke as a family, we worked together and we got back on top again. So I learned this at a very young age, which was very healthy. Wow. Um, Whew, okay. Now. It's a lot. For me. I feel like I've talked too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not no. at all. We want to hear it all. But I was, one thing, John, too, you, you mentioned the phrase, it's time. I didn't start off 
with a phrase. Right. I was kind of the beginning of it's time to begin the ultimate fighting championship, you know, like that. Yeah. I didn't have anything at the main event because I didn't want to be, again, I wasn't interested in being Frank Sinatra Jr. I didn't want to go, let's get ready or this or that. I wanted to say it's not what I say, it's how I say it. That's the kind of announcer I wanted to be. But his time did come along, and I trademarked it a number of years ago, and it's become a big staple, and um, it's, it's very cool. <laughs> Speaking of cool, let's at when, if ever, and uh, this, is good for, uh, this is good for James because he's an orthopedic surgeon, so let's talk about the, the elusive 360. <laughs> the 360, um, I give credit to two people, mainly Joe Rogan. Uh, we were in back, and Sean Shelby, the matchmaker, because he, he really pushed this, right? Oh, my God. And I was doing the 180. I was doing, like, the 90s, you know, boom. And then yeah. I would go into the red corner and say, introducing first, and then boom, I'm like this which all stemmed from a mistake I made one night at the show because I moved so much in the octagon when I was introducing. And I always say the blue corner first. I noticed I was facing the red corner. And I have a really good spinning you know, back fist, bottom fist, whatever you want to call it. So I just immediately threw my body into the move and went to the blue corner. And the audience reacted. And I go, wow, that works. <laughs> That's kind of cool. So I made it part of my announcing. So then Joe said to me, well, what are you going to do to top that? What can you do to top the 180? And Sean's like a 360, you know, and all this. So Joe filmed me, and I'm in an overcoat and a suit, and I jumped in the air, spun in a 360, and, you know, did an impression of what I would do. And he got blown away by it. So then it became like a campaign on the Internet with all the, you know, amazing uh, UFC fans out there that, you know, love the forums and everything else. And um, I, it started to become a challenge. When am I going to do it? So I said, if I do it, I'll do it at UFC 100 when I'm introducing Brock Lesnar. Right? Or I said I would do a UFC 100. I didn't tell anybody when I was going to do it. And I kept everybody thinking, right? So then before the show, it became the topic. Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? I just kept everybody thinking. I waited till the very last minute. And if you watch the video Joe has on YouTube, you see him looking at the camera going, he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. And then all of a sudden, he did it. He did it. Right? So I introduced Frank Mir, walked across the octagon, said, you know, the heavyweight champion of the world. Rock, and then I jumped up, spun, landed, punched my card in his face. Lesnar, it was kismet, man. It was the, it was a, a screenwriter couldn't have written it better because I got to fall flat on my face, John. That's not an easy move. I'm in a tuxedo, I'm in street shoes. I'm 48 years old, and I'm in front of 20,000 people. Talk about a little pressure, but if you ask me, do I have pressure? No. You got to be a cool cat in life, John, just like you are. You know that. So okay, then. What happened? You there was there was an injury. Oh, you're talking about the knee injury. Then that wasn't during a UFC. That wasn't during a 360. That wasn't during a 180. That wasn't during an aerial jump. Uh, it was okay. This is <laughs> wow. You're getting a lot, guys. Get the book. I'm telling you, there's a lot more in there. But I'll, I'll give you the detail. I was at a poker tournament the week before uh, UFC. I think 103, 105, Toronto, Canada. The Biggest UFC in history, 55,000 people sold out in like seven hours, right? We're all pumped because the biggest show we're going to have, right? The pressure's on. George St. Pierre, Jake Shields fighting in the main event. I was at a poker tournament. You know I love to play poker. So I was at a poker tournament the week before. I got up during the break and there was a dip in the carpet. And when I would roll my ankle when I was, you know, moving in the ring or whatever, okay, great. The next day I'm fine. This one was bad. 
I woke up the next morning, my ankle's swollen with blood. I had to go to the hospital. They had to pull a ton of blood out and fluid out of my ankle. I'm walking on crutches. I go back to finish the poker tournament. I get third. I win $30,000. I'm very happy, but I can't walk. And it was Thursday before the show, and I still can't stand on my leg. Now I'm like, how the hell am I going to do this? This is, I'm really getting like freaked out at this point. Day of the show, I knuckled up, taped up the ankle, went out there, did the show, did everything, did the jump, did this, did that, did the turns, the whole bit. Then I go to introduce George, the last introduction of the night, and I go, George, rush. And he lunges out the way he always does, and I bunny hop back the way I always do when he does, and I when I bunny hop back, the bad ankle wobbled. And when it wobbled, the knee just exploded. So I gave George St. Pierre the most painful, loudest Pierre I ever gave. It was like, George, rush, St. Pierre! You know, like, ah, ah. My knee's just like, wonk. <laughs> I didn't fall, though, John. I didn't fall. Stayed up. Stayed up. A warrior out all the way through. All the way through, he completed. And then I blew my knee again two years ago. If you remember, I was at a lip sync contest. Uh, oh, by the way, when I blew the knee, I didn't miss a UFC. I just uh, strapped it up. I had to go make a movie the next week called Here Comes the Boom that a bunch of us were in. Had UFCs for two months. Talked to Dr. Elitros, who did Tom Brady's knee, uh, who's very friendly to me. Uh-huh. And, and I found a four-week window. Uh, I went in on August 5th, and four weeks later, I was flying to Philadelphia, full-on Osser brace on my knee. I'm sure you, James, I'm sure you know Osser. They made me a beautiful brace and I had UFC emblazoned on the brace. I mean, I'm such a UFC guy, right? <laughs> and uh, it was a little buffer light. Yeah, I was flying out there with Joe Rogan and Joe Rogan's like, are you really go- four weeks and you're back? And I'm like, yeah, Joe. And I was walking faster than him in the airport because I'm not fighting, John. I'm announcing. These guys are putting their lives on the line, these men and women. I can get out there and do my job. And then when I blew my knee two years ago on that lip sync contest, <laughs> the, the night before three UFCs in a row, right? Three days, James, three UFCs, right? I go out of a lip sync contest. I'm doing uh, Billy Idol Rebel Yell, right? And he jumps at the beginning. So I made a big mistake. I had a street shoe on and I had a street sock, which are slippery kind of. And I put on a Reebok shoe because I thought I could move better on the stage. So when I did the jump in the beginning, the... Uh, my foot slipped a little in the Reebok shoe, and I was on a wanky stage, and it caused my knee to buckle. So right as I landed, before I even started lip syncing, I felt that same pop that I had in my right leg happen in my left. Oh, it was your other knee? It was my other knee. Oh, wow. That's and terrible. then I popped. It was crazy. And then in the first 50 seconds, I can't watch it anymore. I get kind of nauseous. But if you go to YouTube, Bruce Buffer Blows Knee at Lip Sync Contest, you'll see 45 seconds or so in. It popped twice after that, and the leg just gave out, and I fell down, right? But I still kept doing Rebel Yell, right, doing the thing. And I got back up, and I did a guitar solo. It was three minutes long. I finished three minutes, and I sat down. I thought, oh, my God, I blew my knee again. So I went and got an MRI the next morning. They said the ACL's gone, completely severed. You need to go relax, lay low for a few days. I go, I can't do that. i got to go to work in four hours. So I did three UFCs in a row, three days in a row, which are like eight, nine, ten-hour days. Um, on one leg, you know, they managed to get me a brace halfway through the show that night. And you'll see if you watch the show, it's outside my tuxedo. The next two nights, it's inside my tuxedo. And I made it through the show. I did I did buckle going down the stairs on the last fight. I almost fell. That must but, have hurt, though, because usually with an ACL, you get pretty swollen pretty quickly. So, I was swollen. I was on ice. Yeah, the doctor's telling you, lay down, put your feet up, relax, and you're doing the exact opposite. So 
He told me to do it. He said lay down like days and just relax, elevate, you know, ice, whatever, compression. Um, yeah, that was the case, but can't do it, James. I had a job to do. I had a job to do. <laughs> Good Gotta for you. Do. Good for you. Oh, by the way, I haven't had a replace. I'm living without the ACL. So how does it do for you, doing your job and doing what you need to do? You all right? Fine. Doing fine. No yeah. problem. I mean, I train like a bad boy. You know, I keep the legs strong and... Um, I wear like maybe a little compression sock the night of the show because, you know, if I turn, I just want a little extra support. But according to Elishwash and everybody, I rehab great. Uh, it's not there. I mean, I don't, I don't spar or fight anymore and I don't surf big waves anymore. And if I do something that I think I'm going to need to brace for, I've got, you know, I got braces I can wear. When I go surfing, I just wear a brace. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and we have plenty it. of patients that do that, and they get by just fine. Some people can't. Some people with an ACL tear, they're just daily life is a problem, but some people no, do mine, really well. Mine's good. I'm walking up and down stairs all day long in my house. And Another reason, too, I, I almost lost my mom during the time that uh, uh, the ACL happened. I was dealing with other pressures in life. My mother was home in hospice. Uh, John, we talked about that. She had pneumonia. Her lung collapsed, and they told me she was going to die in the next three weeks. Wow. <laughs> And I got her home in hospice with nurses, and I wasn't about to get myself operated on. Uh, I had to take care of my family, and that's the kind of person I am. So um, they called me, and they graduated my mom out of hospice, but you know as well as I do that, John, what do you call it? The death rattle, right? Yeah. you got to be careful. It could come back. I had to make yeah. sure my mom was okay. I was not going to be laid up and not be able to take care of my mother. And that's If you're my loved ones and my family, I, I live for you. That's just the way I am. Wow. All right. Well, I got, I got a question out. for you to change gears, and I ask everyone you've had on the show because it's fascinating. How do you know this guy? <laughs> how did you Just meet John and become friends years. with John? Because everyone asked me that, but how did you get to know John, and how how did you become friends with John? John's hard not to become friends with. Uh, he, he's such a great personality to be around. Uh, and like in the K1s, remember John, you're doing K1s and I was announcing K1s with Michael and we'd be at the Bellagio like years ago, you know, still doing UFCs, seeing each other at UFCs, which back in the old days we had three a year, right? Yeah. Then it went to six, then it went to 12, then it went to 22, now it's where it's at now. So John and I would run into each other like Boy Scouts go to camp on the MMA campus on these trips and, yeah. and I remember one time walking down the hallway with Michael and John has to yell out, Hey, look, it's the greatest announcer in the world, you know, and he's mentioning my name and my brother standing beside me. And it's like, well, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I really like this guy, but now I really like this guy. What a character. You know, this your, is great. Your brother didn't. No, I mean, you know, Michael was cool. Michael's a I very know. cool guy. He's, 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 he's okay with everything. And then, of course, you know, Chuck and I are friends and, and John's been with Chuck forever. And I've announced all of Chuck's fights in the UFC and. That's the beauty of this business, guys. We make great friendships. And, you know, John and I wouldn't see – if we don't see each other for a year, we're still going to be exactly the way we are when we see each other, which is buddies. Right, John? Yeah. It's always going to be the same. Definitely. Always going to be the same. Let me ask you, uh, since we're just – since you just brought up Chuck, what what's your feeling about all the the talking about him fighting again? What What's your first instinct? My first instinct is I wish he didn't have to because I think Chuck's made a lot of money in his life and God knows he's proven so much to all of us. He is the, he is truly the ultimate warrior, uh, anybody, anytime, anywhere. Um, and I have so much respect and friendship for Chuck 
and Heidi, his whole family, it's like, okay, at first I would say no, at 48, what reason is there to fight? But you know what? They throw a lot of money at you, which they are going to, I'm sure. Um, and the thing is that Chuck's a true fighter. You know, it's in his blood. And I'm sure he watches the fights sitting on the sidelines or on TV and just envisions himself in there and how he would do against everybody's watching. And, you know, it's there's a term in show business um, – the smell of the grease paint and the roar of the crowd. You know, it's kind of hard to get away from what gets you going. It would be very hard for me to walk away from those great nights announcing in the octagon when it's my time, but I'm not the fighter. You know, I am in my own mind in certain ways, but Chuck is a fighter. And his his dislike of Tito Ortiz fuels that fire, uh, which, is the, which is the questionable opponent they're trying to make for him from what I understand. I just want Chuck to be happy and do whatever makes Chuck happy from a health standpoint. I'd rather he doesn't. Um, it's not that I don't think he'll do great and, and, and potentially be Tito. I'm not saying anything like that. I respect his being a warrior that he is and I don't want Chuck to do what he wants to do, but I, you know, if it's two, three million or whatever they're throwing at him, it's a very hard decision to say no. Yeah. You know, when it comes down being yeah, Chuck is. Liddell and also styles dictate winners in fights. Now, granted, they can call this a trifecta, you know, uh, a rubber match, whatever. It's really not a rubber match because Chuck beat him twice. And usually, you know, styles dictate winners. Chuck could beat him every day. But, you know, Tito's been fighting more than Chuck as far as he had a fight, I think, in the last year or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he's been more active. He's been more active. Yeah. Um, if there's a big question, and John, we touched on it, you know, once you get knocked out, um, is your chin still there? You know, and then you got to ask yourself, is Tito the kind of striker that Chuck would really have to worry about? But uh, a big man, 205 pounds, can knock any man out in the world. It's all about getting hit. So who knows, you know? Yeah. yeah how, do you, how do you feel, John? I don't like it at all, but I hate it. So, but, but, if he, but, if he, but if he chooses to do it and it's in his heart, I'm going to – I want to be the one in his corner – helping him, then I'd rather be there than not there. So if he's going to do it, and I'd rather get him ready. Yep. Uh, but I'd rather, if, if it was up to me, I'll just say no thanks. But I'm not a big fight fan anyway. So, John, the biggest injustice you could ever do to Chuck through your friendship and love with Chuck as a brother is to not be in his corner that yeah. night because I mean, or leading up to that night because anybody else that trains him, it's not right. He's been with you forever. Um I, if Chuck asked me would I want to see him fight, I would give him the same answer. But I would say, Chuck, if you decide to fight, I will back you a thousand percent. I would be there for you. This is me talking. I would support Chuck all the way. Best wishes, the whole bit, because uh, Chuck is a is a great guy. He's a good friend, and I, I just want what's best for him. We all have to make our decisions as men, right? Yeah. So our friends around us, our supporters, need to support our decision, unless we're doing something that's wrong and against the law. And you and I are not those kind of guys anyway. Either shark. So. No, and and if I had seen him being brutally knocked out over and over again, then that would be one thing, and I'd be, I'd be, I'd be more, uh, you know, I'd be putting my foot down more. But he hasn't. I mean, like I said, I mean, there's been guys in the last UFC that have been knocked out five times more than he has, and they're still fighting. So exactly. And I don't think. I mean, people talk about the way he talks a lot. But he's always talked like that since he was, he always has been a slow, kind of slurry almost talker. You can barely understand him. And that started way before his fighting career because I knew him before his fighting career. 
That's the yeah. way he talks. I've known Chuck not as long as you, but long. Yes, it's the way he talks. You like and I Steve both Bick. know that Chuck. Yes, but he's a very intelligent man. Very smart. Chuck is a very smart man. So if Chuck wants to make a conscientious, smart decision based on him, Chuck Liddell, then I support it. Yeah. I do. I'll tell you one thing. Let's get down to the nut cutting. If he and it is Tito face off each other, I literally don't watch a lot of MMA because I'm, I'm doing MMA almost every week. That's when I'm going to watch, boys. I wish I could be there to announce it. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. But that wouldn't make certain parties very happy if I was. Yeah. So, yeah. so what now with the UFC being once a year, then three times a year, then six times, now it's what, 40-some fights a year? 41 or 42. And how many do I you did do? I did 39 in 2016. I did 34 in 2017. You cut out for a second. I think you're back. Are you there, Bruce? I'm right here. Oh, there you are. How do you how do you keep up with that many fights and that many outfits? Because you're you got some of the best jackets I've ever seen. So how do you do it? Well, I'll give credit to my uh, my exclusive tailors. They're amazing. Um, they'll get like these swabs of raw jacquard silk and send me different patterns, and then I'll pick out the patterns. They'll make two jackets. I get the one, uh, you know, which I'm I'm their spokesperson. So the other one, they they auction off for charity to pay for the one they gave me because they're very expensive outfits. Um, and you know, I, I usually get about twelve, ten or twelve new outfits a year, you know, give or take. Excuse me. And then when I go home after a show in my closet, the one I wore goes to the back of the closet and slowly makes its way forward. And when I see it go about three quarters forward, that tells me it's been about four months or so. So it's time to maybe wear that one again if it's the right one for the show. That's my own little system that I do. Um, but, you know, I enjoy the different. And again, it's my king and bay. If you've met my king and bay. They can deliver the best, freshest suits to anybody, no matter where they're at in the United States, and they're amazing. But to do it, again, the hardest part of this job is getting on a plane. John, you probably agree. It's the hardest part. I mean, you're traveling a lot. The whole novelty of flying, uh, whether it's first class, business class, coach, whatever, it's kind of worn off. It's, it's one of the operational necessities of doing my work. I leave for Singapore tomorrow night. I'll be on a plane for, what, 14 hours. So you just got to do what you got to do. You know, Don't cry for me, Argentina. I'll be flying business business class so I'm okay how many suits do you have <laughs> I can't give you an exact count but I would say I'm easily about 30 to 40 that you know I still have uh, I, I would say 20 20 active 25 active you know yeah. I deactivate and reactivate and w- when you go do you go Friday come back Sunday domestic shows I'll arrive Friday I'm back Sunday uh foreign shows leave on Wednesday night or third you know Wednesday night or Thursday morning get there the day before the show. As long as I get a good night's sleep, I can perform and then get back. Because the secret of jet lag is the quicker in and the quicker out, the less jet lag that you, you suffer from. Yeah. For me, and it, the hardest jet lag is coming back from Asia and Australia. That's the tough one. And I'm going to uh, Singapore. I just got back from London. I was filming a movie with my brother there last week. Um, and now i got to leave for Singapore. So, What is the hardest name you've had to say? Or has there ever been a name that you couldn't say? Never been a name I could not say. I'm not saying I never made a mistake in my 20 years of announcing. The longer, the more syllables, the harder to say, the more fun, and the better for me. The hardest names in the world are names that have one syllable, like 
Mike Swick, Frank Trigg, right? Because I want to draw them out. So it's like, Mike Swick. Yeah, I'm just going to draw it out versus Habib Nurmagomedov. You know, it's like, give me the meat. You know? what, what's the Joanna's name? Give me Joanna. The former, the former, the former, the UFC Hall of Famer. Boom, boom, boom. That gets me jacked. Not that I don't get excited for Mike Swick and Frank Trick. Don't get me wrong. No. But it's single syllable. You know? Just give me give me the Joanna. Joanna! Eugene You know, it's great. And but when you look in her face, because I'm usually about a couple feet away from him when I'm getting, you know, when I'm kind of in my mode, I don't know what I'm gonna do till I do it. But it's so honorable when they look at me and they're feeding off it. And Joanna is just intense. She's intense. She wants that. She wants that announcement. It gets her going. That's cool. Can't yeah, wait to see you on. What are you out. doing during the fight? I mean, are you are you right at ringside watching the I, whole fight? I'm texting him. <laughs> John's usually texting you while we're watching the fights. And <laughs> I answer John's text, and suddenly I'll get a text saying, or, or rather, it'll be on Instagram or something. When I post, I go, "Stop texting on your phone. Watch the fight." He's like, <laughs> "I've been there for eight hours. You know, people don't realize I got directors in my ear. I got to make notes. My I might be concentrating the card for the next fight at that given moment. Trust me, I am a fan first and announcer second. So I want to see the fights. I love the fights. Every minute, I've never gotten tired. The moment my passion wanes, the moment I get tired, I will be coming on your show announcing my retirement. Okay. Simple as that. Uh, that yeah, that's not going to happen. Do you have – Do you? Uh, who's in the ear of uh... – of Joe Rogan, it's uh, is it Delagrati? Does he still do you it? You know, I can't, honestly, I can't answer that question. Um, all of our ears are open to the director and producer, you know, at the time if they need yeah. to get to us. But a lot of people's ears have a lot of going on of everything. Mine is directly to the truck, so I only hear when they need to speak to me. I don't hear what's going on at Joe's uh, end, but I would assume he has the director and the producer, uh, Delagrati, in the back. Um, you know, I would assume, but I, I can't answer that question. I don't know. So you've done whatever. How many fights have you actually announced, do you think? John, I can't tell you. I'm not going to ask you any women That's anymore. Like, you asked me earlier how many women I've dated. I can't answer these questions. It's like, it's, I don't know. There's Maybe a lot. I will tell you one thing. That's a lot. One thing I'll tell you is uh, if you ask me, I never rehearse, okay? I don't go in the shower going, Chuck Liddell, you know, the ice bath. I don't do that, okay? <laughs> I rehearsed one time the 360 in my room. I did it three times on the carpet of my room before I went down to the arena. I slipped twice. How do you think I felt going in the octagon that night, knowing that I better pull this off or I'll be the joke of the internet on the forums on Monday morning, right? This was a so, one-time deal that's 360? Yeah, one time. Joe Rogan and I talked about it. We both agree. You do it one time. That way it's... It'll always be remembered, hopefully, for whatever people remember it for. But I mean, I could do it. I'll do it right now with one ACL. But I gotta, you know, I gotta go to Singapore, so let's not chance anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't do that. Do you do you ever feel? Because I honestly feel like this with you, because because I like you so much, I love your work so much. But do you ever feel like? Because I feel like watching you, I honestly feel like one of the fights. It's like with your with you doing that. It's like it jacks people up. It gets them going. Let me you tell you what happened. Like, do you get like stress, like before a fight? Do you get all pumped up before you go in? John, you've seen me before fights. 
You see me, I, I, I maybe I, I look funny to people sometimes, but I don't think about what people think about me. I have a thick skin. you got to have it in this business. I do what's best for me to get me jacked up so I can honor and enhance that moment for these warriors standing in that octagon who've been training for eight weeks for that moment and for these fans who've been watching for hours for that moment. My job is to enhance that moment. So to enhance that moment, i got to jack myself up. Now, I've been sitting down for six hours or whatever, going in and out and doing whatever. So you'll see me stretching, moving around, moving my shoulders, you know, getting my, my hips loose, whatever. Because when I get in there, it, it's like I'm still Bruce Buffer, but I'm get in my mode. Just like when you fought, when you get in your mode, or even when I did what I did, like somebody punched me in the face and that got me in the mood. You know, it's like now it's ready to go. So I was doing, here's an example. I was doing, um, I opened up the comedy store in LA last night for Tony Hinchcliffe's uh, Golden Pony podcast. Joe Rogan was there. We're in the back. And Joe was so cool. He was paying me compliments. And, you know, we've worked together for 20 years. And he, we were talking about a bunch of stuff. And he said, you know, when you came out at that Romero fight against Whitaker, oh, we we're all going crazy. I my, I'm pumped up and got goosebumps and everything. And I looked at him and I said, Joe, you know what? So do I. Right? I still am a kid in a candy store, guys. And, and that's the passion I got to keep. And I'll say it again. I, I love the paycheck. Don't get me wrong. I'll be the first person at the bank on Monday to cash my check, okay? But I'm not about the paycheck. I am, but I'm not. I'm about life experiences and doing what I love. And I'm doing what I'm passionate about what I love. And the moment that passion wanes, it's time for me to step down and let somebody else do what I do. And that's going to be when I do it. That's all I can tell you. I love what I do. I have no other way to tell you guys. That's all I can tell you. What what do you think uh, about crowds? Like where uh, where's the crowd just the craziest? Like in the last few years, because we see it kind of on TV where people just go nuts at some of yeah. these cities. The last few years, um, the UK is amazing. The the UK fight fans, whether you know it's UK, whether it's Ireland, you know anywhere you go, they just go nuts. They have a great time. Brazil. Amazing energy. The first time they, the entire arena started saying it's time back to me was with the first time we went back to Brazil some years ago. And uh, I walked out of the octagon and Stitch Duran, the cut man, comes up to me and goes, did you hear that? I go, what? Because I'm, I'm focused on the fighter. I don't really hear the crowd. And, and I'm focused on what I'm doing. And he said, they all said it's time with you. Now, these are 20,000 Portuguese-speaking individuals. And now when I go back, it happens again and it started to take over elsewhere. So to answer your question directly... Every country and city has its own flavor, and they all get excited. Now, in the Orient, in Asia, they have a tendency to be quiet, respectfully quiet watching the fights unless somebody gets thrown, a big move happens. Then you hear the oohs and ahs and all that goes on. England, they go nuts. Brazil, they go nuts, especially if Brazilian fighters are fighting. Canada, huge fans, right? And then there have been some what we consider like, what's wrong with this audience right now? Why aren't they popping? You know, and I don't want to say any show disrespect to anybody, but that's happened a couple of times too. But for the most part, we're in the greatest fighting sport in the world, and we put on the greatest fights in the world, and we have the greatest fighters fighting for us in the world, and the fans love it, and they show it pretty much everywhere we go. Were you at Liverpool? Sure was. That was nuts. That on TV nuts. at least what we saw, what they showed on TV looked insane. The crowd looked insane. It was crazy. Yeah. It was insane. There's certain cities that are insane. Like they had a show in Chile, which I did not do, but you could have put a, a gelatinous, you know, lump in the middle of the octagon shaking. That was the announcer, and they would have been going nuts. They just certain crowds are just naturally just go crazy. 
And that was the first time the UFC was ever in Chile. I wanted to do that. I got a lot of email and texts and tweets from people wondering why I wasn't there, and I appreciate that. But um, again, mine is not the reason why mine is what to do or die. I well, go it's, it's noted when you're not there. It's definitely noticed. When, uh, we're, when we're watching the fights and you're not there, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely I'm noted. not a happy camper. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> if you're not there, I'm not a happy camper. <laughs> so let's talk about your... Uh, your um, and you've done it for me a couple times, and it's 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 it it gets such uh, it gets such attention. But do people out there know that there when somebody calls their house that or calls their cell phone, the answering can be it's. Do people realize that they can have Bruce Buffer himself <laughs> announcing them? I get asked this all the time, and what happened is I wanted to get back to the fans, so I put a thing on my website at brucebuffer.com, uh, a championship introduction, and I've been paid a lot of money for this, and, and I'm not trying to brag. Again, I'm not that kind of guy. I might come across that way sometimes, but I'm not the kind of guy. I I enjoy the money I make, but I wanted to make it affordable because these fans, they're, they're spending 60 bucks, you know, 12 times a year to watch us, much less whatever else they do in their fandom. So... I charge $99 and they'll get back an audio that will be a keepsake. I guarantee it'll blow you away. I, I, I love the thank you letters I get back and the excitement that people feel. So I have that special there that can be designed. I do the birth of babies. I do weddings. I do voicemails, private you know, affairs. Um, and then I also offer all these on video too, which obviously is just a little bit extra money. But the videos, I'll dress up in the tux. I can even go in front of a green screen and put anything you want behind me to enhance your event, whether it's your wedding or whatever. And I uh, just go into it, you know, walking down the aisle of love forever, presenting. It's, yeah, but there's a long buildup before that, of course. It's yeah. It's, I I um when you did the uh, the um the I I did a I did a workout CD, and it was. You know, John Heckle or John the Pitmaster, and it's my. So we play it at the gym every time I play it, and you're no, you're you're you come on. Everybody's like, "Holy shit, that's Bruce Buffer! That is Bruce Buffer!" It got people go nuts when they hear that. You know, I, it just it just warms my heart to hear that because listen, never forget where you came from, guys. I think we all know that. I remember walking through hotels and arenas, and it was crickets, you know, nobody said anything, and, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, that's whatever, and all of a sudden now, it's hard to get back to my room, but you know what, if I'm asked respectfully, no matter where I'm at, for a picture, an autograph, or to say hello, especially to young kids, you know, because I believe in being a role model to my sphere of influence, as I say on my podcast, and to everybody involved in the sport, we have, we have a service, we're, we have an obligation, you know, in the position we're in, and that's to be role models to everybody that are fans of the sport. So I'm always willing to give back as much as I can to the fans. And also that $99 that I charge for that, um, portions of that are sent to either animal, children, or military charities, which are my three favorite charities to give to. I'm all, I will do anything I can for the military, for police, for children, and for the safety and the preservation of animal life. Oh, wow. I'm telling yeah. you right now, guys, when I play my video, when I play my CD, or it's not even a CD, it's a, it's on my cell phone. But when I play that, people go absolutely nuts. They go, they're like, 
That is no. They think it's fake. They think I actually faked it. Because I do, <laughs> I do, uh, I do. I admit, I kind of. <laughs> you can ask. You can ask James in class. A lot of the times, the, this my students hear me saying, "It's time," and I make them. Then I make them do push-ups or something. And they're they think it's pretty silly. But anyway. Don, I don't think it's silly, and it's okay, and you're a brother, and you enjoy yourself, my friend, because you're just honoring me every time you say that. Thank you. Well, we love you, and I, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, I can't wait to see you again in, in, uh, at Bulletproof, and uh, we can hang out. But Absolutely. Really that place is great. It was, yeah, that was great. Heather, my wife, you know, she doesn't know you as well as I do, but she had so – it was almost four hours we were hanging out. I know. And then know. my wife was like, holy shit. We were there almost four hours. It like flew by. She said, I like that guy. She had so much fun. It was She's... a little awkward at times when we were talking about certain topics, but she <laughs> she She's fine. She's been married to you for how long? I know she's fine. She's okay. You have a wonderful, beautiful wife. Heather is, I, 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 she's just adorable and a pleasant to be with every time I see her, John. And you love her so much and it's so obvious. And I, I am all about the sanctity of marriage. Even though I've never been married, I think it's incredible. You make a beautiful couple. Uh, you really uh, do. Well, thanks for coming, brother. And I hope I see you real soon. And we appreciate you coming. And uh, I love you, brother. Bruce, nice to I meet love you. you too, Appreciate you coming. Thank you. Very nice meeting you too, James. And and I'll be okay with no ACL for the rest of my life. I, I do it fine. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be good. Thanks, brother. I appreciate Thanks. it. John, brother. Thank you, brother. Thanks. Thank you.